Our scripture this morning is found in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to back up two or three verses and read what we read last week, and then pick up with the text you see there in your bulletin, and those last two passages in your bulletin, I'm going to leave them to Pete. Pete's preaching in the 9:30 and 11, and he knows what in the world he wants to do with those verses. <laughs> I think, I hope he does. I don't. And besides, I didn't get to my sermon last week. I spent all of it on my introduction. <laughs> so we're really hurting, so you're going to have to bear with me this morning because I'm kind of like that third leg of a sprint relay. I feel like I got to catch up because they know I'm the slowest one <laughs> in the race. Matthew chapter 5. Stand for the reading of the word, if you would. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Jesus has told us that he did not come to cancel or to loose or to destroy or to slacken or to set aside the law, but he came to fulfill it. We talked about several ways in which he did fulfill the law in his person, and that is who he was, and in his work, that is what he did. But one of the ways Jesus came to fulfill the law was to fill it full of meaning. When Moses gave the commandment back there in the days of the wilderness wandering as they had come out of Egypt, God had delivered them. He had rescued them. Then he gave them his law. Notice that order. God saves us first, and then we're given the prescription of God's will to follow in obedience. It's not the other way around. It isn't that God gives us his will and his law, and we obey it, and then we're saved. We're saved first. They were rescued from Egypt first. And so the Lord gave the law to Moses, and the law, we'll read it. Let's just go back and Check the actual text. It's pretty straightforward and simple. The first giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 13, it says simply, You shall not murder. You shall do no murder. I know the authorized version says, Thou shalt not kill. But the technical language is just a little closer to the notion of murder because as we know, there are such things as justified killings. In the case of punishment for crime, in the case of just and holy war, 
and also in the case of self-defense. So it's not just a blanket idea of killing, it's the idea of murder. And of course, even there we see that encased in that understanding of the law, thou shalt not murder, is that there's something more. There's not just the external act of shedding blood, taking a life, but there's something in the heart of the actor that causes it to be like that. And this is, of course, exactly what Jesus came to emphasize and to teach. This particular commandment is designed, as all the commandments are, they're designed to protect something and to promote something. We'll come to the text next time, which will say something about thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, that is designed to protect family and marriage and true human sexuality. And that's what the commandment is for. This particular commandment, the one that Jesus is citing here and giving us the example as well as the actual teaching of what is involved in keeping the law of God, talks about life. This is the commandment that God gave that protects life. You shall do no murder. The Lord created life. We find life back in the book of Genesis in chapters 1 and 2. We find the story, a very simple, straightforward, very sparse, but yet very, very poignant story that tells us how the Lord created life, all life, and then especially human life, man and woman, mankind, and what he did in the creation of life. And this commandment is given to protect it. It was part of the creation ordinance. When God created life, he expected no one to violate that commandment. It was a commandment that God gave that we would think of as a creation ordinance. It stood. The reason is given very simply in that first few verses in Genesis. It's because God created man, male and female, in his image. So an assault upon a human being is an assault upon the image of God. To shed man's blood is to go against God in the worst possible way. It is an assault upon God. God stands as the protector of man by the stamping of his image upon man. Man can reflect and honor and understand and communicate with God. A precious and a special creation was Adam and Eve. That's why, boys and girls, we just can't really bring ourselves to believe all the nonsense of evolution. Because it is that single pair that bore the image of God from whom we all came. And there, one doctrine in the Bible after another stands or falls on the reality of a real created person. The Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah, get thee down to the potter's house. And what did God show Jeremiah at the potter's house? He showed him that he could take a lump of clay and do with it whatever he wanted to. And God does that in creation. And by the way, God does that in recreation. He does that because he's God. He created. We belong to him. We're in the image of God. So that's why as time goes by, God gives commandments even further. 
In Genesis 9, he tells the people right after the flood, there's a lot of context here, but just hear the words that God spoke to Noah and his sons. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Right there when God had started over with, in a sense, another creation, but really just a continuation because he did not destroy the image of God. He did not destroy mankind entirely. He preserved one man. And as God does in covenant, he preserved an offspring, three sons. And he gave this commandment showing the preciousness of life. And this is the way that God expects things to go. In fact, he spelled it out a little more thoroughly when he got the covenant with the children of Israel. If any, I'm reading now from Numbers 35. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of the murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. There's where the Lord shows the sacredness and the value of life again and says that you are not to shed others' blood. Murder. He continues on. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. There's a sense in which God in his person and his omnipresence and his ubiquity inhabits humanity and the land, all the land. And when you commit an act of violence, you commit that shedding of blood in the land. Well, we don't have to really go this far in our Bible. We never really needed to get past Genesis chapter 4. Because sadly, with the first pair, as they began to procreate, born to Adam and Eve was Cain and Abel. And you know the story there in Genesis 4 where these two brothers split in the division of labor and began to work and keep the garden and do everything they were to do, but they were under the curse. And so life was hard, and God had required sacrifice, and they brought their sacrifice, and Abel brought a sacrifice, and Cain brought a sacrifice, and I won't go into the nature of those sacrifices except to say that the Lord was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, not pleased with Cain. And the Bible says, and the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So following this very negative religious experience, here's how Cain responded continuing the verse. 
So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And then the Lord preached the gospel to Cain. We won't go into that, but the Lord spoke to Cain. Anger. An emotion leading to murder. And this, unfortunately and sadly, is, is how it happens. So the commandment in the Decalogue, thou shalt not kill, doesn't say anything about anger, does it? Well, that's because we need to understand what the commandment covers. There are a few commandments but they're rich and deep in meaning. And that's what the Lord wants to teach His disciples. The disciples of the scribes and the Pharisees, they understood the surface level, the literal meaning, the overt action. So if they didn't actually go and slice somebody up and shed their blood and have them bleed out and kill them, they thought they were doing pretty good. They were doing well because they were keeping the commandments. And the Lord is here to show us something very important that is the basis of our understanding of how to live the Christian life. And that is we first need to understand the commandments, what they promote, what they protect, and how they are kept. And then what are the things that violate the commandment? What are the things that fall short of the commandment? What are the things that are against the commandment? And that's what Jesus is teaching here in this particular illustration. He's teaching us where we are to get our understanding of the commandments. It goes way before the simple letter of the law. The commandment is just short and simple. But yet, as we'll give a little hint of this morning, it is deep and rich and incredibly profound. When God gave the commandments to Moses, he was giving a transcript of his own character. God himself is the source of life. So to not murder is to promote life, is to honor God. And it is to worship God. And it is to give the God the respect that He deserves. One of the ways in which humanity can give the proper homage to God and can recognize Him for who He is, is to let His commandments be the foundation for their laws. In other words, our civil and criminal laws are based upon the commandments of God. And the reason that God pushes that is that he is both the lawgiver and the creator. If we really believe in creation, which some of us sadly don't, um, but if we really believe in creation, we understand how we stand in relation to God in that incredible difference between the creator and the creature. And when we understand our creaturehood, we understand all the rights and all of the aspects of God's sovereignty, His holiness, and all of those things that make God God. 
and make us humans the creature. And so the, the creature-creator distinction and the proper balance and understanding is the beginning point of wisdom. The understanding of the, the majesty of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We begin to understand things. In other words, our, our science, that is our knowledge, should be shaped and generated by our understanding of God. That's one of the problems we have is we let our science come out just out of the thin air. Instead of grounding our all areas of our science, and by the word scientia, the Latin science in the English, is the word knowledge. It's our understanding and the body of, of things there is to know about the wonder of God's creation. God's the creator, and we're the creature. So therefore, the things that we live and have in our lifetime, we must follow him. That gives us something that is known as theonomy. Theonomy, theos, God, nomos, law, God's law. And it's this understanding that all righteous, true justice descends from the order which God has given in his commandments. Man's understanding of justice, righteousness, order, law is derivative. We think God's thoughts after him. He gives us the notions and the understanding and the foundational principles. And then it is ours to go with these and repeat these and apply these and work these out. In fact, Israel did a lot of that in its ancient days as it dealt with the law of God. God's law is the basis of man's law because God is the creator. Therefore, he's entitled to be the lawgiver. And law works this out in several ways. We see them mentioned in the text. When it talks about you're liable to judgment, and then it talks about you're liable to the council, and then it talks about you're liable to the hell of fire, what Jesus is doing is enumerating the spheres of justice. There is, first of all, the civil law. How mankind is to live together in a civil way. The thou shalt nots and the, the mandates and the prohibitions of civil law. And that's the judgment. That's what God has given the power of the sword. In Jesus' day, it was ultimately the Roman authority. So someone that murders was liable to the laws of Rome with respect to murder. The Bible outlines a justice system. You are not convicted upon the witness of one witness, the testimony of one witness alone. Witness may be true as it can be, but it's not to be depended upon. Because of the fallen nature, God insists upon two or more witnesses to a particular crime. But when a certain amount of God's justice has been performed, you have a better chance of getting to a righteous judgment or a true and a good verdict. And it's very, very important to reach a true verdict because the Lord does have outlined in his law severe penalties. We saw it's the death penalty for murder. 
in the book of Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 that we read. A lot of people these days don't believe in the death penalty anymore. And there's a lot of reasons why we might not. One is it's been administered so poorly. We have, we have ignored truth. So we really sometimes can't really tell whether someone did it or they didn't do it. And because of the fallen nature of a jury, here you've multiplied the madness by having multiple uh, uh, jurors sitting to listen. And we vote and we go with a majority vote rather than what is actually in fact true. We go with an emotional feeling rather than what is in, in fact what the evidence shows. O.J. Simpson. We go with a miscarriage of justice often. And because life is so precious, we sort of are reluctant to come down on that particular thing that will take a person's life. So we begin to, for one rationale and one reason or another, eliminate the justice. But what we do is we let the blood fall into the soil. It was Cain's blood, I mean Abel's blood that cried out to the Lord, that the Lord heard, the blood in the soil. And so when we withdraw the death penalty and withdraw the, the concomitant justice that leads us to a righteous verdict that would lead us to a penalty of death in the actual carrying out of the death penalty, when we let that slip aside, all we do is allow the blood to fall in the earth. So because we will not execute a genuine murderer, we are horrified to find someone killing schoolchildren in a mass murder, killing babies in the womb. But it's because a society and a culture has not recognized the gravity of this shedding of blood and dealt with it with the honest, guilty murderer. Now, that's something probably that we could deal with. That's the civil court. The religious court is the council. There's a church court. There's a way God has not only instituted the family and instituted civil government, but God has instituted a government within his church. And it's to be an active and a righteous government. I hear everybody lament that we are losing, and if we ever had very much of a notion of church discipline, that's because we are just letting it slide. We're not seeking truth and justice in our church discipline so often. And so we let sin slide. And as we study theonomy, we work between that which is civil law that we are able to codify into a civil code. And we call them crimes, misdemeanors, felonies, crimes when we disobey them. But there we have to understand that connection between crimes in a society that is codified by the civil code and sins. And when we're willing to start let sins go and not worry too much about what God says about the punishment for sin, then it's pretty easy to see that we're going to let the civil code slide too. And now we've reached a point where people really don't believe in justice, and so district attorneys are actually not prosecuting crime. And we've got a place in our society now, as we begin to see it, we've become more, more and more lawless. In fact, if they do enforce a law, it's usually some kind of simple mandate having to do with uh, meeting in church when there's a pandemic going on and things like that. But that is enforced with the sword and with power. So this idea of what is a crime, what is a sin, what is it based on, who's to say? And once you have forsaken the word of the Lord, there's no profit in them. 
P-R-O-F-I-T. That's profit. When you've forsaken the word of the Lord, you go bankrupt. I didn't say that. A prophet, a real prophet, Jeremiah said that. They have forsaken the word of the Lord, and lo, what wisdom is in them. And that's what's happening in our society. Some people get real upset with political parties. They get upset with churches. They get upset with a lot of people when they see so much evil in the world. But there's evil in the world because it has not been restrained. And that's what God gave his law for was the restraint of evil. Evil has been unbridled in our society. It tends to multiply and it tends to intensify and it tends to compound. And so that's the problem we're in. But there's a higher court than that. There's not just the civil court, the judgment. There's not just the, the Sanhedrin or the council or the, or the church court, but there is also the divine court. The divine court is mentioned in the text, and it's called, shall be liable to the hell of fire. And what you have here is a picture of Gehenna, which was a valley, a river valley south of Jerusalem, where that they set a fire that would burn the carcasses of animals that would burn the dead carcasses of people, of vagrants and others, criminals who had been dealt with, were thrown in there. They would burn the garbage and the filth of the city. And that fire never went out. It was a fire that went all the time. And because there were so many dead bodies there, there were worms and all kinds of maggots infesting. And am I painting a good picture for before breakfast on, on Sunday morning? And that's what Jesus called it. He said it's a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. It's a picture of eternal punishment for sin. Well, the, the spectrum of sin goes from just simple things that we let slide all the way up to the gravest of them all, that is murder. Now let me conclude by just making this one point with a document. I'll just read a little bit from it. I mentioned the commandment sets a higher standard, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was concerned really with just the act, not so much the motive, behind that the feeling, behind that the thought, but Jesus wanted to reverse the order and get us to where we understand that it's not just the act, it's the motive can be sin. It's the very feeling, the very desire can be sin. Even the very thought, the conception, the very conceiving can be sin. And it can go quite deep. And let's don't get off subject. Let's stay with it. Let's stay with murder. Here's our confession. I'm turning over to our larger catechism, and it asks the question, what is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is you shall not murder. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the lives of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices that tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any by just defense of the life against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, 
a sober use of meat, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreation, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courageous speech and behavior, restraint, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and repaying good for evil, comforting and relieving the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. We don't have time, but the next question goes into what are the sins forbidden by the Sixth Commandment? Did you know the Sixth Commandment called us to basically bear the fruit of the Spirit? 